You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Well, great to be with you, City on a Hill. Hope you're doing well. If you're new or visiting, my name is Guy Joy and privilege, as always, uh, to serve as the pastor of this church, uh, a church very much committed to knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Uh, a couple of months back, uh, I received oh, someone uh, SMSed a, a clip to me uh, featuring uh, none other than Jordan Peterson. Uh, I love Jordan Peterson's work, such a sharp mind, uh, considered by some to be one of the greatest kind of philosophers of our generation. And I was particularly interested in this clip because it was directed squarely to the church. Now, as far as I know, Jordan Peterson himself is not uh, yet a follower of Jesus, yet here in his message, he makes this passionate plea. I want to share with you one quote. You ready for it? Here it is. He says, if we can bring it on up, your churches, for God's sake, quit fighting for social justice, quit saving the planet, attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your holy duty. Do it now before it's too late. The hour is nigh. Uh, I wanted to share this with you because I believe it captures what has been a long and historical tension. Should we, the people of God, invest our time and energy in the areas of social justice? Should we be out there trying to save the planet? Or is it our duty and call to save souls? Uh, For years, I've wondered about this tension, and I must confess that for a long time, I really would have resonated with what Peterson was saying. I'd often scratch my head at Christians who seem to be far more passionate about recycling and keep cups than their neighbor across the road. To me, social justice warriors seem to be so focused on earth, when in reality, we should have eyes for heaven. Yet I've come to see that this is a limited and reductionistic view of our Christian faith. In the end, the divide between social action and evangelism is a false dichotomy. Social action and the saving of souls is not at odds. In fact, in many ways, they're two sides of the one coin. And we are very much called to make disciples, but we make disciples in the knowledge that God is reconciling all things unto himself. A key uh, thinker in this space for me is none other than John Stott. Many of you will know, uh, leading evangelical figure, minister uh, from England. And he wrote a very influential book called The Radical Disciple, where he lists out all the marks that make up a radical disciple. And do you know which mark took the evangelical world by surprise? It was creation care. He says, God's plan of restoration includes not only our reconciliation to God and to each other, but the liberation of the groaning creation as well. Now, in a moment, uh, we're going to open our Bibles together and consider what Jesus has to say about 
this issue of climate change. But before we do, I thought it would be incredibly helpful to meet uh, my new friend, Annetta Boss. Uh, Annetta has championed education across the social and biophysical sciences uh, related to sustainability, specifically sustainable water development. Uh, she's established and implemented courses for both education in Europe, Africa, uh, in Australia, and uh, leading the charge really for international organizations, government, and NGOs. Uh, Annetta holds a PhD in environmental sociology, uh, is an associate professor who serves today as the de Deputy Director at Monash Sustainable Development Institute. And importantly, uh, Annetta loves Jesus and is very much committed to shining the light for him. City on a Hill, would you make a very warm welcome? Put your hands together for Annetta. Hello. Great to have you with us. Uh, I it, wonderful to have you here. I shared about uh, your passion and your work uh, for sustainability. Um, could you tell us uh, where that passion was birthed from and, and how that's been part of your story? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for inviting me today here. Um, I also would not describe myself as a tree hugger or a greenie, <laughs> but actually as someone who deeply cares. And it's actually been quite a journey. Um, as you can hear, I'm not from here. I'm from the Netherlands and I grew up on water. The Netherlands has a lot of water, but uh, my parents had a business, mm. uh, a ship where they transport cargo from one place to another, and I was actually born on the ship. Wow. And we love to swim next to the ship. And I think that is where my first uh, notion of environment came, because we hated it mm. when it was too polluted mm. that we couldn't uh, wow. swim next to the ship. I've always loved water. I did a civil engineering degree early in my career, and that focused on water. And then I went to Africa for uh, water services provision. And um, I did a couple of years development work, and I learned a lot there. Um, you think you bring, but you take so much. But what I learned from water is we don't only bring the taps, but water needs to keep flowing. Mm. Uh, there is erosion, there is pollution. What I also learned is that technology is incredibly important, but the technology is not everything. We need, we need more than that. Um, in 2008, I got the opportunity to do a PhD in sustainable urban water management here. Mm. And uh, my husband and my little kids at that time moved here. Uh, only for three years. I don't know what happened, um, but I'm still here. Um, but during that time, actually, I, um, I looked at sustainable urban water management, but I started looking at different uh, areas of uh, sustainability. And that started raising questions uh, for myself, uh, for my family, but also as a Christian, because the environment and social justice are really linked. Uh, the poor are uh, uh, disproportionate affected. So uh, that got me here. Um, yeah, I, uh, I need to say, I think, uh, you know, I'm learning in this area as well. Uh, I haven't got it sorted, you know. I, I know about this, but I'm also a human being, and I love, you know, I love also a lifestyle. And what does this all mean? Mm. So I'm also making sense of this whole area. Well, that's great to hear. Um, 
When we talk about climate change, you know, it seems to me it's like on one hand you've got people who are very vocal that this is the biggest issue facing the world right now. Then you've got others who are like, ah, it's, it's, it's a hoax, we can't trust the science, yada, yada, yada. Probably uncomfortable even talking about this topic today. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the research here and, and, and how we can know what to believe? Yeah, thank you. Um, I can't see so well, but um, I actually want to ask the audience a question. Who has had some medical treatment or an operation here? Can you, can you put your hand up? Oh, that's quite a lot of people. Who actually believed the science behind that medical treatment? Uh, quite a lot of people as well, actually. And um, I... I hate to tell you, but uh, in my opinion, a lot of the medical research is not as well researched as climate science is. And when we look at climate science, there is a lot of consensus around that the world is warming up because of what we are humans are doing. So there is, uh, I can put some figures in, there is 98% of climate scientists that uh, agree on this issue. Quite a lot of study is going actually into that. You may have heard of the IPCC report, the International Panel of Climate Change. They, uh, they uh, establish a report every couple of years and they are very influential. Um, that is actually peer-reviewed as nothing else, mm. you know, far more than a lot of medical research, etc. But what we also see, we see uh, ecological geologists, which are working in the fossil fuel sector. Uh, in 2009, for example, only 47% of them uh, believed that climate change was human-induced. And by now, uh, that figure is double. Uh, we see um, meteorologists, for a Dutchie, some words are so difficult to say. <laughs> You're doing very well. Doing well. Um, you know, so you know, there, is, there is a lot of um, uh, proof uh, out there. But actually, a an, um, an quite famous um, climate scientist who works in the UK, is from Canada, uh, Catherine Hay, who says, you know, we've got all the science and the knowledge, but that doesn't make us believe that climate change is real, mm. that it's human-induced, and that it can have great, and is already having great consequences for Earth. And she actually say, it depends on the political spectrum where you're at, mm. you know, and with who you hang out, mm. whether you believe and act on it. Mm. So... Um, yeah, you may wonder why this is actually important and, and what is the science and I'm, I'm going to, um, to illustrate and it's not my, my own illustration but um, Per Elson speaks to this and you know if we sit here we can't see it but we all have air, we have breath, just think about it here. You know, and we share it, and it's God-given breath. This breath is, this air is the atmosphere. It's actually a thin film. It's a thin film around a big um, round ball. And um, think about it as a skin of an apple. It's just the thin layer of about five to seven miles that allows us to breathe, that keeps the temperatures, the water, etc., all in check mm. for the life that 
that we live now. So, and if that becomes unbalanced, which is become unbalanced, it has got great consequences. Mm. Do you want to help us understand some of those consequences? Like, what do you see in your work? Yeah, I think we already saw some uh, in, the, in the video. Basically what it does, it, um, it amplifies and intensifies extremes. So we see hotter weather. And what, what happens because of hotter weather? You know, we get more floods, we get more bushfires, mm. uh, etc. Et the, the oceans are warming up. Um, if we think about the oceans warming up, what is important to Australia, we value the reefs. We've got beautiful reefs here. With one and a half degrees warming up of the ocean, and we are about 1.1 up from uh, the pre-industrial times at the moment, 1.5, 70% of the reefs will gone. We are on a much higher trajectory at the moment. 99% of the reefs will be going. You know, um, food is a big issue. Um, we will see damage, but we also see problems in mental health. Mm. So it's really um, huge. Huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, last question. Um, you know, you're a Christian. You love Jesus. Uh, we're a church. We love Jesus. What What do you see could be as a, like a positive response? Like, what it's, sometimes the, the the issue of climate change is still so overwhelming, so big, and sometimes even a bit so distant. So, what are, what would be some practical steps that that you've found helpful or you have observed in others? Yeah, yeah, thank you. And there, there, there are quite a lot, um, of course, that we, that we can do. You know, it's caused by our use of energy, and we really need to think about how do we use energy. You know, if we, for example, uh, do something in our house, can we do it the cheapest way? Can we think about, uh, can we insulate? Uh, can we have double glazing? Uh, another area is uh, food waste that is really close to... Uh, to all of us. I think 40% of the food is going into the bin at the moment. But I think what we really need to do is we need to think. We need to think about uh, what do we value and why are we actually doing it. So, yeah. Awesome. And is going to join me uh, in a moment or after my message for some Q&A. For now, would you um, put your hands together and thank you. Thank you so much. It's really, really helpful. Well, friends, uh, why don't I pray and then uh, we'll jump on in. Father, thank you uh, so much for this opportunity you've given us uh, to consider what is a uh, significant topic. And I do pray, Lord, that your word um, would be clear to us, that you'd speak, and that as we engage with this topic of climate change, uh, we would see the truth of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and indeed his relevance for our life. Be at work, we pray, for our good and your glory. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Uh, what I'd like to do now is lay for us some biblical foundations, uh, a biblical framework to help us think about this uh, crucial issue. So four uh, responses of how we might think and respond to the question and issue of climate change. Uh, here's the first. Uh, I'm convinced Christians must uh, reclaim a high view of the world. Uh, Christians not only believe in the existence of God, but that he and he alone created the world in accordance with his good and pleasing will. 
And, and it's very important for us to start with that foundational truth because, as you may be aware, throughout history there have been different um, myths and legends that have sought to explain how this world came into existence. And some of them are very peculiar. For example, in, in Norse mythology you have the story of three brothers who slay a giant, dismember it, and then use the body parts of the, the, the giant to create the world. Uh, in Bushongo mythology, which is a tribe out of Africa, they tell the story of a god who became violently ill. I think he had a bad kebab or something like that. Became violently ill, uh, spewed up, and from his vomit came the stars and the earth and humanity. How's that for your self-esteem? When things are low, just remember, look in the mirror, I am vomit. Just, just remember that. Uh, and then my favorite, which probably comes out, well, it actually comes out of Egyptian uh, thinking. Uh, they believed in uh, the god Atum, and he got so bored one day, he decided, apologies for this, but he decided to fill his mouth with his own semen and then sneezed it out to create the world. You're welcome, right? Uh, in surveying these myths, you can see why many in the ancient world related to the physical creation with a certain suspicion and disdain. But this is what makes the biblical story significant. According to the Bible, creation is not an accident. It wasn't vomited into existence was brought into being by a good, intelligent, joy-filled, life-giving God. In John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And do you remember what the Lord said of His creation? God saw all that he made, and it was what? Very good. It was very good. Now, that expression, very good, is not God giving himself a bit of a pat on the back. It's a declaration of the world's inherent value and beauty. Recently, I was with uh, my wife, Vanessa, in the Blue Mountains uh, for a leadership conference. Has anyone ever been to the Blue Mountains? It was, most of you, it was one of the first time I've ever been there. Incredibly stunning. And, and we were staying in this, uh, where the conference was in this, this hotel that was like perched on top of the hill, overlooking the ranges, right? And you go into the restaurant, this particular restaurant, and it's really quite stunning. The entire right-hand side of the wall is glass. Right, so you've got all of these tables next to glass looking out over the ranges. Now, tell me, when you come into a restaurant like that, where do you think people want to sit? By the window with the billion dollar view or by the wall next to the toilet? <laughs> right, it's very obvious, isn't it? Why? Because we're all created for beauty, we're all created for awe, we're all created for transcendence. And here's what's really cool. Creation, God has not only gifted you with creation to enjoy and fill your soul, but actually as a signpost to Him, a signpost to His glory. Uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim what? The work of His hands. When you look up at the stars above, 
And let's say it's a clear night. You could probably sit there and count almost 5,000 stars shining in the night sky. And you will know that that is just a tiny fraction of a universe that extends beyond the eye and all rests in the hand of God. And it is that wonder and glory that testifies to his power and his supremacy. But not only that, you remember what Jesus said in in Matthew 6? Look at this. He says, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Do you see what Jesus is inviting us to do? He's inviting us to be bird watchers. (laughs) Right? He's inviting us to look and see the birds, to look at the penguins as they waddle up from uh, Philip Island, to see the kookaburra perched on the fence. He wants you to look at them and see God's personal care, right? With one hand, God holds the universe. With the other, he feeds the sparrow. Why is this important? The way you see God's relationship to the world should shape how you relate to the world. If the world is nothing more than vomit from a distant God, then who really cares about this world? Who really cares about the mess we leave behind us? But if it is true, as the Bible declares, that we worship a good and powerful God who delights in this creation, provides for this creation, guides and governs all things then perhaps we have a responsibility today to follow after him. Point two, City on a Hill, you, me, we have a unique responsibility to steward God's creation. When God made the man and God made the woman, he blessed them. What did he say? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What does it mean to fill the earth? I love how John Stott puts it. To fill the earth doesn't only mean to populate it, but to decorate it. (laughs) To fill it with architecture and art and music and all the other things with which human beings have filled the earth. And subdue it, developing its resources for the common good. The whole scientific and artistic enterprise is a fulfillment of God's purpose in Genesis 1. And it's part of the creation. In Genesis 2, we get another perspective on the same creation story. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Do you know what that means? God could have created apple trees to look after themselves. He could have created rose bushes that just pruned themselves. He could have created lawns that didn't need mowing. But what God has done has invited us into a divine partnership where we walk in his creation and we work it and we keep it. And if you grasp this, if you grasp the truth of your role as a steward of God's creation, 
I'm confident you will then avoid two equal but opposite errors. On one hand, you won't worship the earth. We won't, as Romans 1 says, exchange the truth of our creator for created things. I listened to a podcast this week uh, about a family in the U.S. The dad actually was an evangelical Christian, but got completely disturbed by the situation of climate change and the urgency of it that he flipped his whole family upside down and said, that's it, we're going all in. And he went to every single rally and he got his young kids up into the spotlight to give the, the talks on it. And like every day, everything was how do we help save the world? And, 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 and that's good and, and, and that's right. Yet it's very clear how quickly this became an all consuming obsession for this man. And it began to unravel. Uh, the kids felt pressured. Uh, They were given lines that they had to say. Uh, When the kids didn't say the right things, the dad became very angry with them. Uh, He wouldn't let his wife buy, I think it was a cat, uh, a pet for the household because that would extend their carbon footprint. When the wife wanted to go overseas with friends, he said, no, we're never going on a plane again. Eventually, the whole family completely unraveled. Uh, He had divorced and he ended up getting arrested for tampering with, I think it was oil lines, uh, trying to help out in this way. Why? Because he'd taken a good thing and make it a God thing, right? We who are in Christ know the one true God. And creation uh, is not a God to be worshipped. It's a, it's a gift to be stewarded and, and, and cared for. So we must be, be mindful of the deification of creation. And yet at the same time, be wary of the equal and opposite error, which would be the uh, exploitation of this world. God has called us to steward creation. Uh, We are to care for this world. And we must acknowledge at this point that Christians haven't always had the best track record when it comes to environmental care. Some have leveraged that word, which Brenton mentioned earlier, and I've quoted from Genesis, of dominion. And thought that that gave them the rights to use and abuse the world however they want. But of course, I hope you can realize that the dominion that God has given us, the rule he has given us, is intended to reflect the rule of God. His care, his compassion, his kindness. And so you need to ask yourself a very important practical question at this point. Do you care about God's world? Are you taking practical, sacrificial steps to steward God's creation in a way that honors him and fulfills the mandate that is before us to steward and care for the planet? I have to make a confession uh, and say that for the most part, the answer for me is no. Uh, I have not cared for this world in the way that I think I should. Uh, I do not, uh, have not previously loved, cared, stewarded the environment in the way that I think is fitting with the biblical revelation. Uh, I'm not saying that I pour oil directly into the ocean, nor am I saying that I give cigarettes to dolphins. But as I reflect on my own life, I've never found myself championing a cause for the environment. 
I've never made the environment one of the issues to go after. I've never taken decisive action like I have in other areas to steward, protect, preserve God's creation. I remember our staff team when we were working in Docklands, uh, we were working alongside another organisation in the same office. It was the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Same office. And what I noticed about these guys is that when they went into the office, they would turn the lights off and work in the dark. I couldn't believe it. It made no sense to me. Here they were. Every opportunity was for them an opportunity to steward God's creation. That hasn't been my story. I don't like keep cups. I don't like paper straws. I find them incredibly frustrating. Wooden spoons. Yuck. Yoga. No thanks. I get it's not an environmental issue, but just while we're on a rant. When it's cold, I want the heating up. When it's hot, I want the air conditioning to cool me. I also love meat. I married a vegetarian. I feel like that's ticked the box. She's telling me, guy, you've got to watch Cowspiracy. No, I love cows, particularly the ones you can eat. And of course, travel is a big part of my family and my work. I have four kids who are at an age where we are constantly dropping them off. I think parenting is Greek for Uber. I mean, I'm just constantly on the move and work. I'm traveling interstate and overseas. And I recognize that extends my carbon footprint, but swimming doesn't seem like a realistic alternative. All of which to say this topic is difficult. Difficult because it's not always easy, is it, to see the impact, the direct impact of our choices. Difficult because there is so much noise at a political, social, cultural level, and we can just hide amidst the noise and say, well, that's too difficult. But I think fundamentally it's difficult because at the end of the day, this lands on my own personal preferences and lifestyle. It's, it's a heart issue. I, I'm sure uh, many of us would, would like to make a difference, wouldn't we? But only when that doesn't compromise our own comfort and ease. Like most humans on earth, we're not great at laying down ourselves for others. This leads to Act 3. When it comes to climate change, Christians, let's be honest, we know the heart of the problem. Uh, anyone seen the documentary Before the Flood? Okay, no one? That's good. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, is the, the host, and uh, as many of you know, he's just a leading activist. And, and interesting, um, he starts the entire documentary uh, with a reflection on this painting that was above his crib as a child. Uh, it's, it's The Garden of Earthly Delights by Hieronymus Bosch. I think it was painted around 1500 uh, by a Dutch painter and uh, a Christian. 
And he observes, he says, you know, every day I would wake up and I would look at this painting and I discovered that it tells a story. In the first panel, you have a picture of the Garden of Eden, birds flying in the distance and creation bearing fruit and there's this religious iconography. The second panel is where things become interesting. The deadly sins begin to infuse the world. There's overpopulation, there's debauchery, there's excess. And that leads to the last painting, which is the most nightmarish one of them all. It's a twisted, decayed, burnt landscape. A paradise degraded and destroyed. Now, I know many on the right side of politics will accuse climate activists for being alarmists. Um, And I also know there are Christians who hold a different view about the scientific data. But whatever you believe about the science, the Bible makes it categorically clear sin is deadly. The choices we make have consequences, real, genuine, planet-shaping consequences. When you make a decision that is aligned with the will of God, it will bear fruit and life. But when our choices are opposed to God's will, we fracture and frustrate God's good design. In the Bible, that is called sin, and the wages of sin is death. Death to our relationships with one another, death to our relationship with God, and death and destruction to our relationship with this world. Romans 8 says that on account of our sin, creation was subjected to futility. Now, I'm sure you know that when we talk about climate change, we're not talking about short-term weather forecasts, but long-term shifts in temperature and weather conditions. Now, these shifts may be natural, such as through variations in the solar cycle, but since the Industrial Revolution, as we've talked about already today, human activity has been the main driver of climate change, primarily due to the burning of fossil fuels, such as coal, oil, and gas. Um, burning fossil uh, fuels generates greenhouse gas emissions that act like a blanket around the earth, trapping in the sun's heat and raising temperature. In 2021, the IEA reported that emissions totaled 36.3 billion tons, which is the highest in history. According to figures from our world in data, each person in Australia emits over 16 tonnes of carbon dioxide annually, which is more than three times the global average. And as emissions rise, our Earth is warming. NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies indicates the average global temperature on Earth has increased by at least 1.1 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution. While that might sound meager when it comes to daily temperature, scientists are telling us that the difference, between, the difference becomes catastrophic when scaled to the levels of global climate. 
The IPCC, uh, which Aneta mentioned before, are the internationally accepted authority on climate change, consolidating more than, more than 15,000 peer-reviewed studies, uh, bringing the best of 1,000 global scientists together. Uh, their most recent report, and I encourage you to read it, it's quite technical. You're going to need to read it a few times, or at least I did. I encourage you to read it. Uh, warns that the world is set to reach 1.5 degrees Celsius level within the next two decades, and only the most drastic cuts, drastic cuts in carbon emissions from now would prevent an environmental disaster. It added, the world is close to reaching a tipping point on climate change. And as part of the, the, the paper, uh, the IPCC set out five scenarios which highlight the consequences of taking drastic action now and what would happen if we took no action. Taking what they call the high carbon pathway, the worst of the scenarios, would see global temperatures rise by more than four degrees Celsius by the end of the century. This would lead to devastating heat waves, millions losing their homes to rising sea levels and irreversible loss of plant and animal species. And it's not just animals that would suffer, but people we love and care about. It's said that those who contribute least to the problem of climate change are those who will suffer the most. Uh, prolonged drought devastates food supplies. Starving animals destroy family livelihoods. Hurricanes and floods can wipe out entire villages. And sadly, when resources become scarce, many families, and particularly children, will be forced into very precarious situations just to survive. And while scientists have been warning us uh, about climate change for a very long time, it's only in more recent years that they've started to accept our part in the problem. Did you know that in previous reports, uh, the IPCC noted a link between human activity and climate change? This time they've concluded, and I quote, humans are the main drivers behind issues such as more intense heat waves, glacier melting, and our oceans getting warmer. The Secretary-General Secretary said, the IPCC Working Group 1 report is code red for humanity. The alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable. Greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuel burning and deforestation are choking our planet and putting billions of people at immediate risk. Who is responsible for the mess we are in? We are. We can't escape that. And the Bible has been telling us this over and over again. Sin, in all its greed, self-interest, deception, and idolatry has consequences. And so where does that leave us? Is this the end of the world as we know it? Maybe. I'm going to leave you with one final word As Christians, let us take hold of our living hope. So writing to the early church, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
The first Christians lived in unstable, uncertain times. They were surrounded by the threat of war, constant political change, and they knew firsthand the futility marking creation. And yet amidst their own fear and frustration, Peter calls them and the church then and now to take hold of living hope. Why? Because in Jesus, they discovered that God had not abandoned the world. He had not left this planet to be forsaken and brought to eternal ruin. No, in God's great mercy, God sent Jesus into this world to rescue, restore and redeem. Jesus showed us what it meant to speak the truth. Jesus showed us what it meant to be compassionate and kind. And Jesus did what needed to be done. Deal with our heart. Deliver us from our evil. And forgive us our sins. I mean, that is what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus going to that Roman cross. Entering into the brokenness of this world and suffering the death that we deserve to die. I know many of us can feel overwhelmed by the infinite responsibility to care for this world. And a lot of Aussies today are gripped by the guilt and the sense of condemnation in that. And that is real. The wages of sin are death, is death. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has paid the price for your sin. In Jesus, by faith, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, every day is an opportunity to stand in his mercy and his forgiveness. And it is this forgiveness that is to inspire in us a new life. A life where our eyes are now set on Christ. A life where we rest in his sovereignty. A life where we take hold of his hope. A hope that promises to reconcile and restore all things. Does this mean that we now sit on our hands waiting for the new heavens and the new earth? No. As people of the resurrection, it is our call and duty to live this hope. So what does that mean for you and me when it comes to our environment and this planet that God loves? It means we're to repent of selfish living and the exploitation of this world. It means we're to pursue a new life marked by Christ-like courage and compassion. You know, we're faced with a crisis that is urgent. The time for action is now. It is our mission to seek God's will on earth as it is in heaven. In practical terms, this could mean lobbying your local MP, national leader, to get behind the Paris Agreement and fulfill the promises. 
We, could, we can and should be encouraging corporates to switch energy systems from fossil fuels to renewable energy like solar and wind. For those who have super funds, we should be interrogating where our investment is going, which companies we are getting behind, and seeking to support those that we feel are stewarding God's creation. The IPCC reports that having the right policies, infrastructure and technology in place to enable changes to our lifestyle and behaviour can result in a 40 to 70% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. This offers significant untapped potential. I was talking with a good friend of mine named Mark Hutchinson. Uh, Mark and his wife Angel have been part of uh, City on a Hill Melbourne for a number of years. Uh, Angel serves on the board of Alpha and is leading the charge with you know, gospel ministry. Uh, Mark had uh, recently retired after a successful career with GE. And yet he was gripped by the urgency of the climate change crisis and decided to do something about it. A few months ago, Mark was invited to come out of retirement and serve as the CEO of Fortescue Future Industries, uh, which is a global green energy company committed to producing green hydrogen, which is a zero carbon fuel that can help revolutionize the way we power our planet. Mark says this, I was sitting with my grandkids at the time I was considering the job. And it was like, do I sit back and wait for them to do it, or do I get up and do it myself? And so with prayerfulness, Mark took the role and is now helping to lead the green revolution. And I love that because it is an example, one example of a Christian putting their faith into action. As I said at the top of this series, Christianity is not just a thinking, it's a being and a doing. I say ignorance is bliss, but it's also incredibly dangerous. And so City on a Hill, we have a responsibility, a duty, a purpose to care. And that will mean personal cost and sacrifice in the way we live, but we, of all people, should be the first who are willing to lay down our lives for others. And we do that with a living hope, knowing that God is in control and that in Jesus all things will be made new. I'm going to give us a few moments to stand, to stretch, maybe to send in some final questions, and then Annetta will join me for some live Q&A. Well, hello, City on a Hill. We are going to dive straight in to some q and I'm joined up here by Anessa and Guy. Looking forward to it, guys. Let's, let's dive in. Should I really get a keep cup? How much difference will it make? Genuine question. Any, any answers? Yes. <laughs> yes, you should get a keep cup. Um, Sold. <laughs> it's, it's just an incredible uh, amount of waste that we need to dispose of, mm. but also uh, the non-keep cups need to be made and that costs energy and we need to reuse our energy. So a keep cup is a real good start. That's good. Thank you for that. I have a few at home. <laughs> Humble brag. Um, <laughs> Second question. 
How can I engage with family and friends who oh, deny climate yeah. science without contributing to growing divisiveness? Anetta. Yeah, thank you for that question, actually. You know, I think I drove in this morning and I was listening to Light of M and there was actually a sermon on, you know, maybe not being in, your fa in the face of your family around uh, Christianity all the time. And maybe it's with climate change as well. But what do people value? You know, I'm a mom. I've got two kids, 15 and 18, gorgeous, bo gorgeous boys. I want them and their loved ones having good health and well-being going forward. You know, what do they value? The coast. People love the coast here. The reality is with temperatures coming up, you know, the water will go up. There will be damage, etc. I live in Warrandyte. Love living in Warrandyte. But it's a, a, a bushfire-prone area. You know, you become aware of things. And maybe uh, it is really connecting on the values that people have. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I um. My wife's very active in this, this topic and has speaking to me about it for years and is very informed and, you know, we've had lots of conversations in our family about it. I think what I would say, you know, to you uh, the, who's asked this question, I think truth matters and um, for you to, to recognise that truth and uh, to share that with your family can be a very loving thing to do. Um, I think being informed is incredibly important. I think my experience is a lot of us aren't particularly informed. I've found even just some of the scientific literature can be, sometimes it's like they're speaking another language and it can be very hard to, to get into that and understand that. But you know, thankfully there are some really great resources. I mentioned the IPCC study and I think even just things like that would be really good. I would also encourage you to, um, to pray. Uh, you know, really, if it is a matter of the heart, as I, I lent into today, we need to pray that, that, that God could move in that. I also wouldn't be, I'll just say that when it comes to matters of truth, we could be talking about this issue or any other issues, um, sometimes the truth can, can lead to a little conflict, but, but that can be healthy conflict in the path of maturity. I would hope you would have family, we would have relationships where you could really dis disagree robustly and do that in informed ways, but with a desire to see, see the truth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and furthermore, it's not only the knowing, so the, you know, you don't need to know all the science to act. Mm. But many people, quite a high percentage, think still that it won't affect them, that it won't affect their lives. And I think that is where a real shift needs to occur. You know, it's real, and we are actually being affected right now already. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. It's very, very helpful. Let's go to the next question. You hear, trust the science, quotation, but if, you, but if science can be bought or influenced by those with vested interests, can it really be trusted? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't know if 150 years ago science could be bought, actually. Um, climate science goes back to well over 150 years. Actually, in the 1850s, there was the first uh, scientific discovery that the burning of fossil fuels was uh, warming up the atmosphere. You know, and it's gone from there. So, yes, there may be uh, some uh, vested interests that can't be trusted, but there is a lot out there that can be trusted. And I, I come back maybe to my earlier statement. Why do we trust some science? Why do we trust medical science or other sciences? 
above the climate science. And I think it's coming back to what you were preaching on, uh, Guy. It's, you know, it affects us, it affects our lifestyles, and we need to do something with it. So, yeah, trust the science. I would say, yes, trust the science. Yeah, Guy, when you see trust the science in quotation marks, how you were speaking earlier about kind of our heart as Christians. Mm, mm. What, what, what do you see as the kind of dichotomy there between our theology and our opinion? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. I mean, again, it's, 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 I, think, I, I would hope today as we've looked at it, the Bible gives us very strong foundations to care for creation. Um, you know, and even if you are sceptical on how, you know, how warm the temperature is or whatever it might be, you can see there are pressing needs. Uh, you can surely work out that uh, unleashing that many carbon emissions into the environment is not healthy. Uh, and so even at the very least, whether you say, well, hang on, historically, the, the world's been warmer and cooler, like whatever you land on, you can see that the environment has an unprecedented amount of carbon emissions, and that's just not healthy. You know, and if we went to the major cities in the world, I think it's something like 10 countries produce 68% of emissions in the world. If you go to urban centres, these big, huge uh, cities, I mean, it's just, it's just not healthy. So I think, number one, uh, it doesn't take long to look under the hood, so to speak, and discover. You rightfully pointed out 97% of scientists. It's also worth saying they are peer-reviewed. Uh, it's also worth thinking about who could you trust. Of course, scientists could be motivated by notoriety, got you know published, whatever it might be. Sure. Again, 97% uh, peer-reviewed, 15,000 times over. IPCC is just leading authority in this place. Um, the tricky thing is that a lot of the should we trust the science comes at a political level or a social cultural level. That I'm a bit, or even at a, at a corporate level. I would be a little bit more sceptical on those side of things than I would uh, the collective of scientists working together. The independent science. Yeah. Independent, yeah, absolutely. That's good. Next question. It's coming. Climate policies disproportionately affect poor people. Rich people can afford the higher costs. How should Christians balance climate action without affecting the poor? Mm who we're called to care for? How we should balance climate action without affecting the poor, we are affecting the poor right now by what we do and how we live, how we, how we use our resources, what we like doing, etc. So I think we need to make a start if you can uh, Partly, some, some things are behavioural changes that we need. And that is really around keep cups, around straws, around small things and around bigger things. But when you can afford it, you do need to think about where can I actually make the investments? You know, does that degree of uh, putting the, the temperature up a degree lower actually help? Or can I invest to get renewable power? It can be solar, but many of us can't have solar. I can't have solar myself, actually, on our house because we have got too many trees around us. But we have we've, uh, looked at power, really renewable power via, uh, the, via the nets. You know, it's all there. So um, I'm not sure if I get this question completely right, but... Uh, if we are rich, and definitely if we Christians, and many of us are quite rich, you know, in, in world terms, you know, what, what can we actually do? So. Yeah. 
I, I think what I would say, thank you for that. I think I would just say there's two things. Firstly, uh, what climate scientists are telling us uh, is that the, the, you know, the, the warming of the environment, climate change, is affecting the poor, number one. In fact, they're going to suffer the most with our inaction. I think the other thing to say is that rich... Well, there is a personal responsibility we're talking about here today, but clearly there's a structural and systemic issue going on here. I mean, we're talking about huge systems. Um, our whole economy, our whole nation is held up, right, by uh, the use of fossil fuels and things like that. So this is a massive, massive thing. But you would hope... Uh, that a country, a wealthy country like Australia, could play a leading role that would not only serve the people in Australia, but also bring along other nations, the poorer nations, help lead. Countries should be doing that, leading the way in serving and, and lifting up or changing the technology to support poorer countries, poorer villages and poorer people. Australia has an opportunity like that with our, so much land and opportunity there, uh, which I think long term would have huge benefits for the yeah. poor. I just want to build on that and, you know, about systems change. This can't do without our whole systems changing. And if you look at Australia and our neighbours, I mean, the Pacific Islands, they're really already suffering. You know, they're going underwater and, you know, we, we will get climate refugees. It's, it, it's, that's a given. Mm -hmm. So we have got a responsibility as well uh, to, to our neighbours. This has been so helpful. Do we have time for one more or are we? Yeah, we do. All right. Let's well, go for another question. Big build up for the last question there. Yeah, here we go. That was assuming there was a last question. Oh, here it right, is. Here we go. It seems that the most practical things are interrogating super, turn off the aircon, driving less, consuming less, is it fair to say creation care is part of, even integral to the gospel? Absolutely it is. I actually think, I think before the fall, we had been given the mandate around stewardship. We could have power, but we needed to care and we need to even protect the world. You know, even before sin was there, this was part of what was being told to us. And uh, yes, it is integral to, uh, to us following Jesus. Yeah. I think you said that well. Fantastic. Hey, Annetta mm. and Guy, thank you so much. Can we give uh, them a big round of applause? So incredibly helpful and insightful. I, uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue our worship service. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we uh, are so uh, grateful for what we have seen and heard in your word today and God I, I pray that uh, as we go from here and as we enter into worship we would continue to consider these things this creation that you have made and the the impact that we have on it each and every day God guide our hearts and guide our actions as we seek to follow Jesus in his name we pray amen, amen. thank you for listening to our podcast if you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.